0: Hey, brother, there's an endless road to rediscover. Hey, sister, know the water's sweet, but blood is thicker. Oh, it's sky... Welcome to the Reform Brotherhood. Brothers don't shake hands. Brothers gotta hug. I'm Tony. And I'm Jesse. Brother... I'm going to have a brother? (laughs) I've always dreamed about having a brother. If you'd like to join our brotherhood, you can join our Facebook group. You can email us at reformbrotherhood at gmail.com, or you can find us on Twitter at reformbrohood.
1: You can also subscribe and rate us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. Hey, brother-in-law. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. Tony, what's going on tonight?
0: Not much, just recording a podcast like every Sunday.
1: I love the Lord's Day podcasting.
0: What are the highlights of my week?
1: I'm actually a little bit nervous about this podcast because we're going to talk about something and reference the, we're going to make this as ambiguous as possible to start with, we're going (laughs) to reference that Westminster Confession of Faith, and I'm going to read it, and there's a word in there that I don't often say, and which often feels like it wants to come out as another word, and that word is testator.
0: Testator, I wonder what word that might come out as. (laughs) I have a funny story about that, actually. Oh, please tell the story. So when I was in college, uh, I did – my degree was biblical studies, and so we had to do an introduction to New Testament.
1: That is hilarious.
0: And um, we were talking beforehand, and um, our professor was uh, Michael Holmes, who is probably – probably one of the leading um text scholars, text critics in the in the New Testament. Um so like hit the most recent Society of Biblical Literature Greek New Testament, he was the editor on. And so he was teaching the class and it was before he came in, but everybody was there and I said something to the person sitting next to me and you know how like sometimes you say something and as you're saying it the room gets really quiet for some reason. Oh yeah, yep. I turned to him and I said, you know, I'm really having a difficult time with this textical criticism. <laughs> and it was like the room got quiet and it was like a good it felt like a good forty five minutes before everyone burst out laughing. It probably was about two seconds. Oh, that's great. But the whole room just lost it. Yep. Textical criticism.
1: Oh, that is outstanding. Has it ever happened to you since then? Uh you know, I don't think it has specifically, no. I, I feel mean like that that's the kind of situation that just ruins the use of that word. Like, I would try to avoid yeah. that in public conversation going forward.
0: Yeah. You know that episode of Seinfeld when George is trying to go out on a high note? So, like, yes. he says something and everyone laughs. He's like, that's it. I'm out of here. And he just leaves the room. That's what I felt like doing. <laughs> but it would be like a low note. I'd be like, all right, I'm done. Nothing I say has any credibility from this point I, forward.
1: I just can't come back from this. Yeah. Yeah, guaranteed. I'm gonna say that next time I try to say textual, which I really just had to think through in yeah. my head oh, to yeah. make sure I said it properly.
0: Yeah, it's it's hard. It, the struggle's real.
1: It it is real. So besides textual criticism, what is it that we're talking about today?
0: Uh, well, we're not talking about that, but what we are talking about uh, is systematic theology. So yes, we're uh, theology. on our next episode of systematic theology, and tonight we are talking about covenant theology. Bring on the covenants. So up until now, almost everything that we've done in um, the study of systematic theology has been sort of broad Christian theology. There hasn't been anything particularly uh, reformed, except when we talked about limited atonement. But the rest of what we've talked about has been very kind of like broad uh, Protestant evangelical theology. Right. tonight. We're talking about covenant theology, which is um, not uniquely reformed, but is especially reformed. Um, so much so that most people would say you can't actually be reformed unless you affirm some sort of covenant theology.
1: Right on. I'm excited about this. It's time to get into the reform pool and yeah. wait around. Yeah. So I'm going to read the first question
0: that usually comes up in the discussion of covenant theology is what's the actual definition of a covenant? And different figures will define it different ways. I'm reading uh, from probably what's one of kind of the classic works, um, The Christ of the Covenants by O. Palmer Robertson. Um, This is kind of the the most common definition people cite. And it comes from page four of that book. It says, A covenant is a a bond in blood sovereignly administered. When God enters into a covenantal relationship with men, he sovereignly institutes a life and death bond. A covenant is a bond in blood or a bond of life and death sovereignly administered, um, which he goes on in the next um, section of that uh, book, that chapter, to kind of parse out each of those those words. So that's what we want to keep in mind. It's a bond in blood sovereignly administered.
1: So it's like infinitely serious right from the beginning.
0: Yeah, it is. And we'll, we'll talk about some examples in scripture that demonstrate the seriousness of a covenant um, once we get to that point. But Jesse, why don't you um, go ahead? If you have it in front of you and pull up, um, go ahead and read uh, seven, one of the Westminster confession.
1: Let's do it. All right. So here's point one of chapter seven. The distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures do owe obedience unto him as the creator, Yet they could never have any fruition of him as their blessedness and reward, but by the voluntary condescension on God's part, which he hath pleased to express by way of covenant.
0: So let me break that down a little bit. Um, So basically what it's saying, this is talking about prior to the fall. So what it's saying is that even in a state... Before sin enters the picture, there's still this chasm between God and the creature, specifically talking about man. And, you know, sometimes you see like that, that illustration where like there's man on one side and God's on one side. And there's this chasm that's sin and then the cross comes and makes a bridge to cross over. So that's certainly true. But even before sin created that chasm, there was still this gap. And so God had to um, had to condescend himself he had to come down in order to bridge that gap and the way that he bridges that gap gap is by uh by forming a covenant with adam
1: right right does that make sense yeah that's that's right on that there so what we're basically saying even to start with is that the covenant itself the idea of covenant and its application precedes even the fall right
0: Right. Yeah, absolutely. And that's something that is definitely – like I said, I don't want to necessarily say that it's unique, but it definitely is kind of a distinctive of Reformed theology where a lot of other theologies, particularly Roman Catholic theology, is going to say that um, humans are created in such a way where they're capable of – of obtaining and earning merit in order to get eternal life. And what the Reformed are saying here is that no, even even Adam prior to the fall, prior to sin, still wasn't able to achieve eternal life under his own power.
1: Exactly. And, and that's important to keep in mind.
0: Yep. So why don't you go ahead with number two?
1: All right. So here's point two. The first covenant made with man was a covenant of works wherein life was promised to Adam and in him to his posterity, upon condition of perfect impersonal obedience. Right. So this is reemphasizing that
0: point that um, Adam himself was promised life and what we're talking about isn't just like being alive because obviously Adam was already alive we're talking about eschatological end times permanent immutable life Um, the kind of life that Jesus has in his human nature after the resurrection the kind of life that you and I will enjoy after we die and are raised to new life in the end times that's the kind of life it's talking about and what it's saying and what we'll get into the specifics of what the covenant of works is and all that stuff but what he's saying is that the very first covenant that God made was a covenant that functioned on a principle of kind of you do this and I'll give you that. So Adam was said, be fruitful and multiply, work the garden and keep it. Um, Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And if you do those things, if you accomplish those things, then you will be given on the basis of this covenant um, access to the tree of life and eternal, immutable, eschatological life.
1: And this is already starting to emphasize the nuanced nature of the covenant that we often speak of covenant in this broad brush way, but there are facets to it, as you've already just described that are different. And we're going to, I think we're going to tease out some of that stuff, but it's, it's a really complex and beautifully complicated process of understanding this.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: All right. So here's point three, man, by his fall, having made himself incapable of life by that covenant, the Lord was pleased to make a second commonly called the covenant of grace wherein he freely offereth unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in him that they may be saved, and promising to give unto all those who are ordained unto eternal life his Holy Spirit to make them willing and able to believe.
0: Man, just look at that for a second. It's just so So beautiful. So um, what this is saying is that Adam... Adam failed to keep his part of the covenant. So he was given these conditions and he said, if you you fulfill these conditions, I will give you life. And if you do not fulfill these conditions, then you will be cursed with death. You will die. Die by death is how the language actually says it. It's got that repeated uh, emphasis. And so he's saying that because Adam was incapable of life by that covenant, God made a new covenant with Adam, which is called the covenant of grace. And in that covenant, basically that's, that's, you know, Genesis three fifteen 15 that um, right. God will send the serpent crushing Messiah who will defeat the enemy and restore the, Uh, life to his people. And so what it's saying here, and this is where this kind of um, sometimes rubs against sort of general evangelical thought is that our salvation has a requirement. And it says here that the covenant of grace is requires faith in God. So there, that's the condition of the covenant. So a lot of people will say like you, you'll have an unconditional covenant, but the fact is that all, all covenants have conditions that the parties are obligated to. Um, But from there, you know, you see that the conditions of the covenant are given to the person. So God sends his Holy Spirit and his Holy Spirit makes us willing and makes us able to fulfill that covenant.
1: Right. And that's the key. Like you said, there's still always some kind of responsibility in each party's behalf. All right. So here's point four. This covenant of grace is frequently set forth in scripture by the name of a testament. In reference to the death of Jesus Christ, the testator and to the everlasting inheritance with all things belonging to it therein bequeathed.
0: I would just like to have a round of applause that Jesse nailed the word testator.
1: Listen, I worked on that hard. Yes. So um, I will
0: be transparent and say that I am not uh, 100% exactly sure what this passage means. This This is is an area that I need to study more. Um, But as far as I can tell, um, this is sort of a quirk of history because the the word covenant in – the King James Bible is very frequently, um, translated as Testament or like a will, like a, the thing that happens when you die and all your stuff gets left to someone else,
1: like a last will and Testament,
0: right? Exactly. And there is places in the scripture. Well, there's one specific place in scripture where that seems to be the only possible meaning. Um, however, um, all sorts of other ancient Near Eastern studies forwarded by Klein um, have shed some light on the fact that the, the word covenant in the New Testament, particularly, but in the Old Testament as well, probably doesn't have that range of meaning as much. Um, so this is a article of confession's faith, but it's it's one of those things that's kind of not as central to the system. Uh, but the the point that it is trying to emphasize is that scriptures talk about a covenant and a covenant requires death in order to be initiated. And then also if the covenant conditions are not met, death is almost always the the curse of that covenant.
1: Right. Right. And you can see, like you said, some have debated wherein how those words are applied. And there again, once again, they're like kind of like nuances with the application in terms of, Is this the kind of thing where we're talking about something where there's mutual responsibilities, though they may be different, with certain blessings or curses? Or are we talking something that is just bequeathed to you by way of something somebody has already done for you?
0: Yeah, and this also emphasizes that um the it makes use of the passages talking about how we're co heirs with Christ. We're inheritors. Yes. So Christ exactly. Christ obtains a kingdom and then he bequeaths that kingdom to us. Um so he obtains the benefits of the covenant and then he bequeaths those benefits to us. Where I think it where I think maybe this this article could use a little bit of revisiting is in the idea of it sort of being that will and testament. Um because, like I said, there's really only one passage in the scripture where that's the only, like, that's the clear meaning. Um, and some of the studies that have circulated around this concept have um, shifted the meaning. Um, uh Legan Duncan, in his iTunes lectures on um, covenant theology, talks about this. So I don't want to belabor the point, but if you're curious about that aspect of it, um, I'll try to look up the actual the actual lecture number that he uses um, and and put a link in there for that as well.
1: Awesome. All right, so there are two more points in this particular chapter, and we wanted to go through them all because we think they are really pertinent to our discussion tonight. So number five is: this covenant was differently administered in the time of law and in the time of gospel. Under the law, it was administered by promises, prophecies, sacrifices, circumcision, the paschal lamb, and other types and ordinances, ordinances delivered to the people of the Jews. All man for signifying Christ to come, which were for that time sufficient and efficacious through the operation of the spirit to instruct and build up the elect in faith in the promised Messiah, by whom they had full remission of sins and eternal salvation, and is called the Old Testament.
0: Yeah, so if I'm going to summarize this all down to one bullet point, yeah, that bullet point is dispensationalism <laughs> is wrong. So um, that that's really the core of this, is that dispensationalism, and we're going to do an episode at some point if we feel courageous enough, um, where we really kind of break down the differences between dispensationalism and covenant theology, because what you have is not just a disagreement on a point of doctrine, but an entirely different system of doctrine and dispensationalism um, more or less argues that there was one plan of salvation for the Jews and there's a different plan of salvation for Christians. And different types of dispensationalism have a varying degrees of emphasis on that point, but that's that's the point is that the Old Testament was for Jews, the New Testament is for Christians, and those covenants that are made with those people, um they don't blur together, they're not overlapping or anything like that. So what this is saying is that this single covenant referring to the covenant of grace, this single covenant was administered during the time of the law, but it was administered differently. So we'll talk about the specific, like the different covenants that we see, particularly in the Old Testament. But each of those covenants, the you know, the Abrahamic covenant, Noahic covenant, all these different covenants, they um, are sub administrations or sub covenants that all are still part of this one ongoing covenant of grace. Right. And so in the Old Testament we see that this Uh, Was administered. There were certain signs and practices and um, ceremonies that were associated with it. Um, that were one thing in the Old Testament. So you think about like the Passover lamb is what it calls out. uh, Circumcision, we talked about that a little bit with the baptism episode. Um, These different things were built into the Old Testament, and it's different under the gospel. And all of these things pointed to Christ. That was their purpose in the Old Covenant, in the the Mosaic Covenant specifically, was to point to Christ as the fulfillment of that, which we'll get into in the next article.
1: Right. Yep, absolutely. All right, so here's the last one. This is part of your daily... Westminster Confession of Faith reading. (laughs) Under the gospel, when Christ, the substance, was exhibited, the ordinances in which this covenant is dispensed are the preaching of the word, the administration of the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, which, though fewer in number, and administered with more simplicity and less outward glory, yet in them is held forth in more fullness, evidence and spiritual efficacy to all nations, both Jews and Gentiles, and is called the New Testament. There are not, therefore, two covenants of grace differing in substance, but one in the same under various dispensations.
0: Yeah. So what this is saying is now that we've established that there was this old covenant in the, the Old Testament, um, which testament and covenant are, are synonym words, um, that now under the gospel, Christ has come and when it talks about the substance that's a technical term to say kind of the reality of the covenant so covenants have substance that you participate in or that you partake in and then there's administrations that sort of like serve as a almost like an entry point to that substance um, so Christ is the substance of both of these covenants, right. but in the New Testament, this covenant is dispensed or is um, issued in a different way, primarily, or I don't want to say exclusively, but primarily in the preaching of the word, the administration of the sacraments, and, um, uh, we would say prayer, other means of grace. And it's making the point here. And I think this is something that's important for us to nail is that the administration of the new covenant is less outwardly, um, flamboyant or, or outwardly, um, visual. So, in the Old yeah, Testament, right. you had, you know, you had a, a huge temple with all these beautiful things in it. You had beautiful metal, you know, golden instruments and special clothes that the priests wore. You had um, sacrifices and incense and all of these different kinds of things. So, the co- the confession here is recognizing that the new covenant administration is less outwardly glorious, but it still holds forth the gospel or the substance of the covenant in greater um, spiritual efficacy. So that's really important. And another aspect too, and and this is another um, kind of competing uh, theological system, is something called new covenant theology, which basically says there was the old covenant and the old covenant is completely, completely replaced by the new covenant. So the 10 commandments are completely gone. The, you know, we've talked about this a little bit before. Um, This is saying that now under the new covenant, both Jews and Gentiles are are receiving the same, um, the same administration. So it's not the case that a Jew could still go back to the sacrificial system and find efficacy, spiritual efficacy in that. Only in the New Testament administration do we find the means of grace. So this kind of speaks against dispensationalism, which we just referenced, but New Covenant theology, which would say, on some levels, that there's still um, there's still an old covenant for Jews. It's, it's, that's why some people kind of call it dispensationalism light. Um, right. And then some there's also a branch of Christians that will call themselves Messianic Jews who continue to participate in these old uh, covenant rituals. So you'll still see a lot of people who will celebrate Passover or they will do Hanukkah, and but they're Christians. And um, the problem with that is that you're it's kind of like after the movie comes out, um, insisting on going back and watching the trailer. Right. Because you're going back to the shadow, the thing that's supposed to point to the to the finished product, and you're participating in that inappropriately.
1: Right. And Jesus is the one who transmutes all this. So he's taking right. all of that physical language, everything that's associated, like you said, taking the transcendent nature of the covenant and God himself and associate with the physicality and turning it into something that's internal. But it's no right. less, uh, as I guess you already said, efficacious. It's no less real. It's just that the the emphasis, so to speak, has changed, and I think that's yeah. important to note. As you have,
0: yeah. So I would I would point out, um, you know, in Luke uh, after the resurrection on the road to Emmaus, you know, we always kind of people muse like, I wonder what he was talking about. I wonder what the sermon sermon was. And the uh, the reality is, he was explaining this principle. He was yeah, going sure. back to the Old Testament. He was going through the law and explaining how all of the rituals and all of the outward trappings of the testament of the covenant how those pointed to him. He's going back to all the prophecies and showing how all of those prophecies that seemed at first to be about the physical geopolitical nation of Israel and fulfillment of the land promise. In reality, That was a a foreshadow, a foretaste of the reality of our heavenly kingdom, which we have in Christ. So it's really important. This is really, really central to Reformed theology to understand that when we say the entire Old Testament is about Christ, we're not just saying that there's predictive prophecy about Christ coming. What we're saying is everything in the Old Testament, every single event to some degree or another, points to the coming of Christ. Um, and you know, that can go a little bit sideways in some types of preaching where people are kind of, um, trying to coax out and they do it inappropriately where Jesus is in the passage. Uh, I think Charles Spurgeon was famous for saying that if you, um, uh, I'm going to get the quote wrong, but basically his point was, if you don't see a clear path, to Jesus in the, in the text you're using that you should go through the hedges and the fences and just plow through and get to it. <laughs> um, which, you know, Charles Spurgeon was great, but everybody, most people right. I know are honest enough to say that like, sometimes his exegesis Wasn't the greatest. That wasn't his main talent. Um, but in reality though, we have to nail that, that when you're reading the old Testament, you are reading about Jesus And before Christ came, you were reading it as a shadow. You were looking at this shadowy thing and not really having the fullness of what it is. But now that Christ has come, we can see that fullness in its glory and we can look back at the shadow and recognize what it was.
1: Right. The WCF is so wonderfully comprehensive and its use of commas is exceptional, just for the record. Yeah. Everybody should go and try to read that out loud because it's exceptional use of punctuation. But it reminds me that Sometimes this conversation starts with, well, here's what God has instituted. And this points us back to the fact that we're not just created and just given this covenant. We're actually created as covenant creatures. Yeah. Of course, not necessarily that we're associated with God and deity, but in the drama that he's unfolding, we are associated. So it points me back to the fact that everyone has a relationship with God and that relationship is covenantial. Even if you're trying to deny it, there is a covenant- right. covenantial aspect to it. Yeah. So, yeah. There's this idea that, of course, if covenant is oaths and bonds and involves mutual people, though not necessarily equal commitments on both parts, um, then that that is our, the reality in which we live, no matter how far we we deny it. So in some sense, to me at least, covenant theology is precept by nature, and it exists as an actual reality aside from just that we talk about it kind of in grand terms yeah. that bring about kind of an ideological component to it. But that's not to detract from the fact that it is Actually, real. And what I appreciate about many things about Reformed theology is that it is guided by this concern to relate all these various biblical teachings to the concrete covenants in Scripture and bring that as part of their proper context. So I think there is a really particular value in understanding the Reformed perspective on this matter.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So um, what we're going to do tonight, um, now that we've kind of gone through the Westminster Confession, and the reason I wanted to get that out there is because – it's important for us because this can go so like sideways so quickly, and it can get really confusing. So I right, wanted to sure. put some scaffolding out there, some some bumpers for us to operate within. But we're going to do kind of a thirty thousand foot flyover of the major covenants in Scripture and what they are, what what the conditions are, what the terms are, and then we're going to try to bring it back to some practical things. And then as we go into our next systematic theology series, um, as we go into creation and fall and you know redemption all of those points we're going to show how these covenants interweave into that and how they interplay so we're not going to get into those details tonight but we're going to get into them as we approach those topics because really this covenant idea drives how we understand creation. It drives how we understand the fall. And then it drives how we understand what we're saved from and how we're saved. So that's where we want it. We wanted to land this first, and then we'll move into those in future episodes.
1: Exactly. I love this because I think that there's great value in being able to take what seems like a really broad topic and distill it down to these bite-sized nuggets, if you will, <laughs> and, and be able to describe that kind of almost like casually. If you if somebody said, yeah. well, describe to me, what is the covenant that God makes or what are the covenants that God he has made? So I because there's so many that even we casually know by name, usually by the name of the person involved, whether Abrahamic or Davidic or Noah that it, it can just get really intense really quickly and seem overwhelming. So I think what we can do best is try to simplify that. So let, let's start there. What are, what are the covenants that you're talking about?
0: Yeah, so um, we have to start, we have to go all the way back before... Uh, before creation, before time. So um, reformed theologians will talk about something that they call the covenant of redemption. Um, I prefer to call it the covenant of peace or the pactum salutis. There's a bunch of different names for it.
1: There we go. I was waiting for the pactum salutis salutis to come out.
0: I don't know the Latin terms for the other ones. I'm sure I could probably like reason my way into it. But the pactum salutis is an agreement and it's a little bit difficult to call it a covenant um, because how do you have a... A, you know, a blood-bound oath sovereignly administered between co-equal, co-eternal, co-essential persons of the Trinity. So I prefer to talk about it as an agreement, but people use the word covenant. And the covenant of redemption or the pactum salutis is the agreement in eternity past. That the father, the son, and the spirit entered into and that agreement different, you know, there's disagreement as there is on most things, but there's disagreements on the particularities of it. But uh, broadly speaking, this agreement was that the father would choose a people to be the, to be God's people. And then the son would redeem those people. And they agreed on the means that he would redeem those people. So he agreed to go to the cross, um, to become incarnate, everything that that entails. And the spirit agreed to apply that salvation or that redemption to all of God's people. So the three persons of the Trinity enter into this agreement or covenant in eternity past to bring about not only the creation of a people for their very own, but the redemption and salvation and sanctification of those people. Um, so that, that's the first covenant that we have to get our head around. And it's also usually the covenant that most um, – when people come to covenant theology and they have an objection, this is usually the one that they have problems with.
1: Right. Exactly.
0: So, And the reason for that is because um, it's difficult for us at times to think about what is going on in eternity past. And we don't always – do the right thing with that. So there's a lot of discussions about like infralapsarianism and superlapsarianism. And there are some reformed theologians, myself included, that just say those conversations miss the point entirely. But this is one that we really have to get at because there is enough biblical data for us to do it. So um, Jesse, why don't you pull up Psalm 110? And while you're doing that, I'm going to pull up a different verse. I'm on it. This is great podcasting right here.
1: To this is really, we're really killing the broadcasting space with this. I, I want to say like, while we're looking those up, um, that this is also the place where we see the economy of the Trinity emerge. Right. This concept that there is, there are in a sense defined roles and they have been defined in like, a, I don't want to say legal. Cause that really undermines the enormity of what we're talking about here, but there are certain responsibilities. And I think that's why we sometimes go back to this language of it being covenantial Right. Even though it's it's before time. And like I said, it's, it's involving the persons of the Godhead.
0: Yeah. And and in one sense too is um, we have to be careful. When we talked about the Trinity um, – I'll pull up the episode and put it in the show notes. But when we talked about the Trinity, we talked about the difference between the ontological Trinity and the economic Trinity. Right. And most people um, – kind of a quick and dirty way to define that is the ontological Trinity is who God is in himself. And the economic Trinity is who God is in relation to creation. That's a good – Basic definition, but we have to remember that even before creation, there are still economic activities happening. So the covenant of redemption is not a part of God's ontology; it's part of God's economic activity. So um, it's not the case, and this is this goes into a a debate that's been raging about the eternal subordination of the Son. It's not the case that this um, agreement to do the Father's will was a part of the very uh, ontological reality of the Trinity. So we're not going to get into that, but that's really important to remember that. The the agreement is kind of the first economic activity of the Trinity. This is the first thing that the Trinity does oriented outside of itself. The Father loves the Son, the Son loves the Spirit, the, the three persons love each other. That's all internal to the Trinity. But this is the first thing that we can conceive of that the Trinity does outside of itself, oriented outside of itself. That's important to remember. Yes, right on. So um, do you have that passage up, Jesse?
1: Yeah, you said Psalm 110, right?
0: Yeah. It's How long is it? I don't remember how many verses off the top of my head. Just seven verses. Why don't you go and read the whole thing?
1: All right, here we go. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion with your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power, in holy garments, from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, will he lift up his head.
0: Okay, so I'm going to read Psalm 2. I am um, going to start in verse 7. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I'm going to start in verse 7, and I'll go to the end. I will tell of your decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is kindled kindled quickly. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So um, Psalm 110 is the single most quoted psalm in the entirety of the New Testament. And so when the apostles wanted to um, go to the Old Testament or go to the psalm specifically and explain who Christ was and what his mission was, they went to Psalm 110. And the reason for that is because Psalm 110 is, in essence, the covenant of redemption.
1: Right. So
0: um, it's basically an it's a. Um, it's a retelling of the covenant that God made, that the Father made with the Son in eternity past. Um, so it's tr- extremely important for us to, to understand that. And when people look at it and say, well, I don't see the covenant of redemption in Scripture, I just don't think that they're looking carefully. Or they don't know where to look. Um, Hebrews chapter 7, a lot of Hebrews unfolds this pas- this passage. You can even look in some ways at large sections of Hebrews as like a commentary on this passage. If you were to say Hebrews is a sermon and what text is the the, um, the preacher using Psalm one ten is a good candidate, and particularly right. in verse four, um, it says, "The Lord has sworn and will not change His mind. You are a priest forever at the order of Melchizedek." Um, and then it goes on basically to issue what the terms of this covenant are. the The Lord is at your right hand. He will execute justice among the nations. He's He's promising the son all of these things that the son will obtain as an inheritance. If he fulfills the conditions of the covenant, which of course, when we're talking about God, of course he's going to fulfill the conditions of the covenant. Um, so that's that's the covenant of redemption in a nutshell. It is the Father um, de- declares that he is going to choose a people. He makes a promise to the Son that the Son will be given these people. So when you see in like um, I want to say John fourteen through sixteen ish somewhere in that that closing discourse. The son is constantly, Jesus is constantly talking about the people who you gave me or the task that he has to fulfill. He's constantly talking about these, this task that the Lord has appointed him. And we have to ask the question, well, when did the Lord appoint him that task? Was it before creation or was it after creation? And this text here seems to be indicating that before creation, the son was appointed to be a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Does that make sense? Are you following with me?
1: no, nope, that's right on. I totally agree with that. Of course. So, since <laughs> so, you basically, just said this is what the Bible teaches, right. and It's pretty clear.
0: <laughs> yeah, and so I honestly, I mean, I'm not trying to be facetious or sarcastic. I I don't understand how people get around this. Yeah, um, I agree I, with I've you. never heard a really clear explanation for how this doesn't play out exactly the way that Reformed theology has um, done. It. And I haven't always been Reformed, so even when I've heard teaching on this in other contexts, that it doesn't. It still seems to be. Explaining some sort of covenant made, but you know, the father and the son and the spirit made this agreement to do this before creation. Um, You know, there's some weird janky theologies that want to say like, well, after sin happened, that's when they made this agreement. That doesn't really work.
1: Right. Yeah. So it always ends up there. It always ends up as I think even when I've heard messages about that particular passage, that are not from a reform perspective, it tends to imply that that's what's going on, but then it's you know quickly dismissed by other kind of qualifications. But there's no doubt that you have to contend with. It's pretty straightforward in its yeah. meaning.
0: Yeah. So once we go to the covenant of redemption, we understand what, what the persons of the Trinity have agreed to. Then we move to kind of how that works out in time. So the, the first covenant that happens in time is made with Adam and it's sometimes called the covenant of works. Um, sometimes it's called the covenant of nature. Sometimes it's called a covenant of life. There's different names for it that emphasize different aspects of it. Creation. Yeah. Covenant of creation, covenant of nature, covenant of life, covenant of works. And we see this right in the opening of Genesis two, right? God makes Adam. And the first thing he does is he gives him a task and he says, I want you to name the animals. And then he starts to give him these tests. I want you to work the garden and keep it. And keeping it isn't just like tending it. It's like protecting the garden. And then he says, I want you to be fruitful and multiply. And then I don't want you to do this. So that. There were probably more terms to that covenant than what we see explicitly in scripture, but the broad outlines of that are... If you do this, you will live. And if you don't do this, you will die. So all of the elements of a covenant are there, even though it doesn't explicitly use the term covenant in that text. But we do have kind of an enigmatic reference to this um, in Hosea 6, 7, and it's a little bit disputed, but I think it's pretty clear. Um, I'm not going to go too far into it, but it says, uh, but like Adam, they transgressed the covenant there. They dealt faithlessly with me. So what he's talking about is he's talking about um, the people of Israel who broke the Mosaic covenant they broke the laws of the covenant just like adam did so there's some questions about what exactly that means but at a bare minimum what we have is the saying adam broke a covenant well what covenant is it that adam broke the only covenant there could have been the covenant that god had with him when he first was created to work the garden keep it be fruitful right multiply and not eat from the tree of of um, good and evil
1: right on and one of the interesting things about the covenant of creation is that the pact itself is presupposing a righteousness on the holy human servant that he's right. he's capable of fulfilling the stipulations of God's right. law. So it's almost, he's, he's addressing this covenant with humanity in an unblemished nature. Mm-hmm. It's not a state of grace, which we're going to get to next, but right. it is different than how we would think about it in our own kind of situation now. Right. Does that make sense? Like Sometimes we go to the covenant works and think, well, we can't meet the covenant of works. And the covenant of works was actually never meant for us in our current state, right. in the state we are now.
0: Yeah. And, and it's, it's interesting that you point out um, the difference between a state of grace and and whatever. Um, The Orthodox Presbyterian church just did a study committee on um, the issue of republication, which we'll touch on very briefly, but um, they actually acknowledge that it is appropriate to talk about the covenant of works as a gracious covenant. And the reason for that is because what we talked about with the Westminster confession is that God didn't have to make this covenant of works with Adam. He could have created Adam as a creature, Let him live and die his life and not, and that was the end of it he could have done that that would have been totally just and legitimate for God to do but God instead condescended and voluntarily condescended to make this covenant so it the only reason that we kind of balk at calling it grace is because we usually think of grace in a redemptive category
1: right exactly
0: if we back up a little bit and talk about it more in terms of just unmerited blessing or unmerited favor Adam didn't do anything to earn this covenant it's not like God looked at him and said well yeah I really owe it to him to give him a chance at this eschatological life Um, he said and said I'm going to." to do this just because I want to, and it's good. And so I'm going to graciously do it, uh,
1: freely going to do it. Right. That makes sense. I mean, it's not, as you said, it's not like God was hanging out with Adam and was like, man, you're super good looking and really great at naming animals. So I'm going to, you know, voluntarily make this pact. I guess at some point, all of our relationship with God and every single conceivable way of thinking about it is grace-filled. We're just trying to differentiate by using that word with this covenant of relationship with Adam by way of saying, if you do this, then this will happen in distinguishing that from this sense of like, again, the bequeathment that we talked about earlier.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So um, the next, uh, the next big picture covenant that we see is made immediately after Adam fails at the covenant of works. So we, we see Adam fails. um, He's cursed by God. Um, Basically God is, is pronouncing the covenant curses of um, the the covenant of works. So Adam failed to, uh, to keep his covenant. And so there were consequences. There was punishment and curses. Uh, but God still graciously condescends yet again. And we see in Genesis 315, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. He's speaking to Satan which is a whole other area of study that the covenant of grace is actually part of the curse on Satan for his disobedience. Um, but I will put enmity between you and the woman between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And so, um, basically God says, fine, I'll do it myself. If you want to boil it down, right. um, yeah. he says, "You know what? I'm not. I'm. I'm not going to try to think that you are going to fulfill this covenant." And of course, God knew this ahead of time. This is all accommodated speech, um, but he says, "Instead, I'm going to put enmity. I'm going to put a division between the serpent and the woman. I'm gonna. Um, I'm gonna be the one that sends the serpent killer. Um, it's not going to be something you do under your own power." And so, what we see from that point forward is there's all these different covenants that are made throughout creation throughout history um, we start with the adamic covenant here in uh, genesis 3:15, and then we move on to the noahic covenant that god makes with noah after the flood and then we move on to the abrahamic covenant which god makes with abraham and then we go to moses and so there's these different covenants and we don't need to get into all the specifics but the thing to remember here is that although these are discrete covenants that um, are self-contained um, in a sense and they are their own thing, they also serve as a broader uh, subcomponent to the covenant of grace. So the the Abrahamic covenant is kind of the culmination of the promise of the covenant of grace, where God says, I will be your God and you will be my people. Um, the Mosaic covenant serves its own function, which is itself a little bit controversial, that uh, it sort of lays out what's expected of those who are um, to fulfill the covenant of grace, what's expected of those after they have um, been redeemed by God, what's expected of them. It also points to Um, The blessings of that covenant, but it also points to the curses of those who are not a part of that covenant. Um, So it's important to remember that as you're reading scripture, that we shouldn't see each of these distinct covenants as though they are um, utterly distinct, completely separate. When we do that, we're actually moving towards a more dispensationalist kind of perspective on it, Um, but that's really important to remember.
1: Right. And at the same time, it's really valuable to recognize that while they are Singular in their flow in the grand arc, that they are like you said, discrete and distinct in their emphasis and impact. So it is interesting to me that we can't get for past you know like the first several chapters of Genesis before we basically got all three in play. Right. And while some of our knowledge kind of starts at the back end as we learn more about those that have already been, been put in play, oftentimes I hear a lot of people go straight to the covenant of grace, even if they don't define it with those words and speak about how what good news that is. But it's really only fantastic news if you understand the cumulative nature of the covenants that God has put into play and that the covenant of grace is like the ultimate fulfillment of that. And it's done through Jesus. And so it's, that's where, again, like covenant theology, it's it's always been eschatologically oriented, convinced that creation was the beginning rather than like the goal of human existence. And so that when you look at the richness of that, like, it's like, I don't know, it's like eating vanilla pudding, which is delicious in its own right. But if you have that with like cake or what my mother makes, like that death by chocolate, have you ever had that?
0: Oh, yeah. Every Christmas. Yeah, it's fantastic. So it's like
1: all these ingredients together, which make this like wonderful, rich dessert. But it is still being able to distinguish between the layered nature of what's going on here. And that's where I think there's great advantage for all Christians to understand something more about the individual pieces of the covenant.
0: Yeah. Yeah, so um so that kind of wraps up the the specifics about that about the different covenants. I just want to kind of read the New Testament kind of culmination of this theology and it's in Romans 5 starting in verse 12. It says therefore just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin And so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. But the free grace is not like the trespass— If many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. For judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought uh, justification. For if if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through the one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life in the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, one trespass led to condemnation for all men. So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Um, I'm going to stop there because the rest of it is good, but um, that was a long passage. So basically what this is getting at is that um, when Adam broke the covenant of works, all of us following him, not only suffer the consequences, but also broke the covenant of works. And there are different ways to explain how that coheres. Um, We'll talk about that in another show, I'm sure. But that's the essence of it, is that all humanity, myself included, you, everyone hearing this, the only exception is Jesus. All humanity broke the covenant of works and therefore is subject to the curses of the covenant of works. So all humanity starts in Adam. That's an important phrase. Christ then comes and he fulfills the covenant of works. Christ obeys the terms of the covenant. He does all that's required of him. He perfectly fulfills the law. He perfectly obeys the father. And so those who are engrafted into Christ and are no longer in Adam now reap the rewards of Christ's obedience. And that's important. That's where that testator language comes from, that we we gain a part of Christ's inheritance. We share in Christ's inheritance because of our covenant status in him. So we can you can think of the covenant blessing of the uh, covenant of grace as the covenant blessings of the covenant of works. We get the same thing, yes, exactly. but we get it a different way. And the covenant curses of the covenant of works or of the covenant of grace are the same as the covenant curses of the covenant of works. So the outcome is the same no matter what. The difference is how you get the covenant blessings versus how you you know in each covenant. So um, a person who's not in Christ, who's not in the covenant of grace, they are left to their own devices to fulfill the covenant of works, which of course they can't do, and so they suffer those covenant curses um, as as being in Adam. Now there's there's a question mark in my head about. Is Adam in Adam? But that's a a rabbit trail I don't think we need to chase um, because I think he probably is. I mean, I don't think we have a reason to think that Adam wasn't saved. Um, So there's a whole question mark on that. Set that aside.
1: How great is this hope, though? I mean, seriously, that, that, that just floors me hearing you read the passage because I just think of What hopelessness there must be outside of that realization. So, you know, in our area, we've got the mighty Susquehanna River and it bifurcates like two shores. Obviously, one is west, one is east. And that's mostly how we label where you're at or what business you need to find or what address you're at. So I think, you know, if one shore represents where we are and one represents kind of like the diagram you were showing or representing earlier this sense of intimacy with God. It's as if we all start on one side of the shore. We're all like, yeah, we'll just swim across the river. And, and you know, some people drown right away. Some people get halfway through, some people get within standing distance on the other side and they still drown, but everybody drowns.
0: Yeah.
1: And I, I think we would probably argue that humankind was created to pass through that probationary period of the covenant of works and attain the right to eat from the tree of life. Yep. And Jesus is the only faithful Israelite who fulfilled the covenant of works so that we could, through his victory, inherit the promises according to a covenant of grace. Right. So that is outstanding. I mean, I like the way you said it, that you get all the benefits of the covenant of works being done for you, but still all the curses apply so that if you turn against that covenant, it's not as if you're in any better position than you are right now if you were to be judged under the covenant of works.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I think one thing, too, that's important to land because it makes it makes sense of – Christ's title as the second Adam in a way that I never, it never clicked for me when that, before I was reformed, why we would call Christ the second Adam is um, even under the covenant of works. Let's, let's entertain a hypothetical situation where Adam fulfilled his obligation. You right, and I still, it. you and I still would have gotten the blessing of the covenant of works without right. doing anything. Right. Right. So Adam would have, would have gotten the tree. He would have gotten the right to eat from the tree. And that blessing would have been granted to us as his progeny. Because right. we're his federal children, or he's our federal head. The yeah, language. he represents us. So no matter what we do, it's not as though each individual human was going to have to fulfill a covenant of works on their own. But because the first human failed, we fail. If he had succeeded, we would have succeeded. And so the gracious act that God does is instead of allowing us to remain, remain in our sin, we don't start out neutral. Nobody starts out neutral except Adam. Even Eve doesn't really start out neutral. She starts out as... If Adam succeeds, she succeeds. So right. that's that explains why Eve ate the fruit and nothing seemed to happen. I mean, we know there was probably just a few moments between when Eve ate and when Adam ate. But Eve ate the fruit. She doesn't recognize they're naked. It's not until Adam eats the fruit that she recognizes that she's naked. So the question of, well, what would have happened if Adam hadn't eaten the fruit is he would have fulfilled the covenant of works and he would have saved his wife, essentially. He would have been the, the Messiah for her, the redeemer for her. Speculative, but I think on pretty good grounds. Right. So the miracle of salvation is not that we start out neutral and we make the right choice. The miracle of salvation is that God takes us from a cursed estate. And for no reason other than his own goodness and grace and the counsel of his will, he takes us and implants us into Christ. And through that transfer of federal headship into Christ, we, we get salvation. We get to be Amen. with God. Um, so that's really important for us to remember that even even the covenant that we're in, even who represents us was not our decision. Right. Right. So nothing of salvation is of us.
1: Right. Yeah, we again, like you said before, all the way through this is just a wonderful condescension of condensation of God. Um, not condensation, condescension <laughs> of God.
0: <laughs> Probably not a
1: condensation of God. Probably not a condensation. I got through testator, but I couldn't yeah. get through. That's all right.
0: There's worse mistakes to make.
1: Yeah, that's true. Um, you know, the other thing that occurs to me is when we talk about this stuff, we're seeing both in the condescension of God and especially, essentially in the establishment of covenant, which has these strict you know, behavioral qualifications, do this and this will happen. If you don't do this, then that will happen. Right. That there is this coalescence of law and love altogether. And we see that all throughout scripture, right? So what's interesting to me, even as we've been talking, is just this realization that to obey God you know, as John says, is to love him. Right. And if anyone wants to know how to love God, the Bible says that the, the answer is clearly given in the law. So the law is not arbitrary. In fact, it you know, it's the law is, is this expression of God's very being. So it's not even an impersonal legal code, which is, I think, the way we still think about right. law a lot of times. But it's this concrete revelation of the moral nature with which we were created as God's image bearers. And that just blows my mind. And that goes back to what you're saying about imputed being imputed with Christ's righteousness because he, as our federal head now, the second, so to speak, is the one who secured the way. Yeah. So absolutely. I think my brain is already down at somersault because this is just such a, a wonderful truth. And that's why it's worth like wading into these waters.
0: Yeah. And I mean, I, I don't want to speak for anyone else, but I can know my experience was after starting to wrestle with this and getting my head around covenant theology a little bit, the scriptures just opened up to me. Yeah, it was like yeah, there was sure. like a light bulb that went off, where all of a sudden Leviticus makes sense. Right. All of a sudden, the you know the sort of weird, obscure passages in the law and sort of weird statements about prophecy that don't seem to have been fulfilled in any way and don't seem to make any sense in like a end times model. All of a sudden, they click. So I, I would really encourage, and I've got a couple book recommendations. I would really encourage everyone to take a look. Um, these are two books, most of them, um, they're, they're pretty easy to read. Um, I'll recommend the first one with a caveat is it's Michael Horton's introducing covenant theology. Sometimes you also find it under the title. Um, I think it's kingdom of promise or something like that. Um, what I'll say as a caveat is there's a controversy in reform theology about what's called the republication of the covenant of works. Um, And I don't want to get into it mostly because I don't want hate mail, but uh, the, the republication controversy is surrounding the question of, is the Mosaic covenant an, an administration of the, uh, covenant of Works, or is an administration of the Covenant of Grace? So the confessional position is that it has to be an administration of the Covenant of Grace, but it's kind of an open question of, of whether it might have been some sort of dual administration. So um, Michael Horton, at least in this book comes down pretty hard on the uh, republication of the Covenant of Works side in a way that right. I don't think is entirely accurate, but the the book is a good introduction to the concepts of covenant theology. Um, he lays out some good exegetical framework for why covenants are seen in Scripture, and he does kind of bring out some of the application. So there's that. The next one I'll recommend is called The Christ of the Covenants, which I referenced earlier. This is kind of the classic work that if you were to take a covenant theology course in seminary, this book is going to be on every single syllabus that's addressing the the topic. Um, And the third, last recommendation, this is much more technical, but if you want to understand sort of the republication question, the OPC, Orthodox Presbyterian Church, like I said, did a study committee on this recently, and they came up with some really good um, kind of guidelines without really issuing a decree about what's right and what's wrong. They kind of went through and explained the controversy and then issued some things to think about as you're wrestling through it. So I'll put a link for that in the show notes, but you can find if you just type up uh, OPC report on uh, republication, it should be one of the first results.
1: Those are all great resources. I, I think the Horton one is particularly readable. It's kind of, like I said, a great primer if you want to, and it, it's got enough meat on the bones to really make you put the book yeah. down and stop and think as you're reading. Uh, it's something worth investigating.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Do
1: you have any recommendations? No, I think those actually covered it. I, Like I said, I, I'm really a really big fan of Horton, and I think he does a pretty good job. It's, it's a really thorough treatment. I think, if anything, trying to, as you read the scriptures, trying to think about what we just talked about in terms of somewhat both the grand arc and compartmentalizing this idea of covenant of creation, or covenant of redemption, covenant of creation, covenant of grace, thinking about how you see in the scriptures. Like you said, Leviticus is a great example. Once you start to understand it and can place it in that rubric, I think it starts to connect a lot of the dots, fill in some of the gaps and give you a sense for what we often say, like when you read that stuff, you should look for the spirit rather than the letter of the law, try to understand what it says about God's character. But this further emphasizes that. And I think the Reformed tradition on covenant theology is really important in bringing to bear a proper context in which to see understand and find like pastoral value and all that reading so it's yeah. a little bit of work but i think once you it definitely like you said transformed my understanding of all this and it's been really immense immenseful. immense full? it's really <laughs> immense blessing that's been full of all kinds go. of rewards for me as i've studied and read and just try to draw closer unto the lord
0: yeah. And the last thing I'll say to kind of bring this down on a pastoral note, even though I'm not a pastor, is um, not a pastor. The, the covenant theology is there for our assurance.
1: Yes. Yes.
0: Right. And so the point is that um, the covenant of grace is great and it's secure. But the reason the covenant of grace is secure is because the Um, The fulfillment of the covenant of grace was promised to the son in eternity past. So the father promised to give his son a people and the the son promised to redeem those people and the Holy Spirit promised to sanctify and set apart those people and bring them to unity with the father, son, and spirit. And so the the blessings of the covenant of grace are secure because is God the father going to break a promise to his son? absolutely right. not. So that, that first covenant may seem arcane and abstract. And in some senses, it kind of is. It's a little bit speculative on some levels. But at the end of the day, that's the beginning of all this. And that's what yes. makes it secure. So God made a promise to us, and there's no reason for us to to doubt that, right? Hebrews talks about how Um, God made a promise and he made a promise not only is the promise unchanging, but he swore on his own very life, which is also unchanging. So it's secure in two ways. But the fact is that that secure promise is also built on an even more infinitely secure promise in eternity past. And that, I mean, there's no reason that that can't just fill us with joy and hope.
1: Yeah. I'm so glad you said that. I meant to say that earlier because in an age where, not only do we feel like we often cannot trust one another or those in whom we should expect to put our trust or have the most power to make decisions that impact our lives, but that even when they express their promises, that they just go back on them, you know, without any kind of second thought. Yeah, I've said this so many times before, but... I always relate this kind of stuff to finance because that's where I work. And so obviously the word credit, all of its Latin roots are in the verb form to believe. Right, And it's, it's striking to me that anything, any document, any trust that you put in someone that's worth keeping, which generally involves money is one that has to be written down and legally enforced because it's that important. And what we're basically yeah. saying here is that the covenant redemption where everything starts is God literally writing it upon his heart. If we can use that kind of anthropomorphic language and it is absolutely firm. It's never going to go anywhere. And we start there. So that is just wonderful confidence yeah. that no matter as all these promises, all our human responsibilities and relationships swirl around and becoming either obsolete or they fade or we're just disappointed. That's not, that's not something that we ever have to worry about with God. And that he continues forward that theme in the scriptures as if to always be reminding us that he is working and fulfilling the promises Unequivocally, that is something that, like you said, should just make us want to jump up or go to our knees. Like, probably not high five God, but probably come come <laughs> to our knees in, yeah. in submission and in humility and and just great gratitude. Yeah, and that's that's probably what I'm going to do after this podcast.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's a good word, and that will definitely preach. <laughs> All right, Jesse, how can people get a hold of us if they have some feedback for us? Uh, what's the best way for them to get that to us?
1: You know what? There are two good ways, and I'm so glad you also brought this up, Tony. The, the first is that, of course, they can find us online and go to our Facebook page, which would be great, which is Reformed Brotherhood. They can tweet us at Reformed Brohood, and they can also give us a call. What is that number, Tony? 607-444-2767. Bros. Bros.
0: So, yeah, so also, we need in, people
1: to call us, right?
0: We do. We're not getting any voicemails. We'd love to do some question and answer sessions. Um, we'd love to get some funny ones that we can play. Um, we'd love to get some more calls where Matt Butts sings romantic songs to us. Uh, <laughs> that was only a little bit awkward when I started playing it on my computer at work and everyone in my office looked at me like I was insane. Um, They're like, who's this Southern guy singing love songs to Tony? Yeah.
1: It is the sweet stylings of Matt Butts. His that voice southern, is smooth like butter, man. Yeah, Alabama, roll tie.
0: Yeah, uh, but in addition to calling us, we'd also love if you would hit up iTunes, uh, subscribe on iTunes, and leave a five-star rating for us to let us know um, what's going on, what you think of the show, what we could change. Uh, or we had one person tell us a funny story about getting attacked by a Sasquatch. That was pretty cool.
1: I'll take that. Yeah, please yeah. go on the iTunes and give us the full five covenants.
0: The five covenants. There we go. I think there's more than five, isn't there?
1: Yeah, yeah. There definitely is, but there's only there's five definitely. stars. So
0: yeah, that's true. I was just... five. Five covenant. Five thumbs up. Yeah. All right. Well, that should just about do it for this week. And don't forget, whoever loves his brother
1: abides in the light.
0: All right. See you next week. Uh,
1: I just, I just. it. Is that was distracting to both of us? Because I was like, I was like, is that an old man? What the heck? <laughs> All
0: right.